So we're continuing with the study of David. Will did such a good job covering a vast amount of territory last week in talking about David, his flight from Saul. Saul had been trying to kill him. And uh, there were a number of close calls both for David and for Saul. And if it hadn't been for David's heart, which was a heart after God's own heart, Saul would have died much sooner. Now Saul was taken down in battle, and uh, because this is about the life of David and not the life of Saul, I decided not to spend a whole lot of time on that. But that's how 1 Samuel ends. In chapter 31, Saul and Jonathan are both struck down in battle, and David grieves not just over his friend Jonathan, but over Saul. And in 2 Samuel chapter 1, he says how the mighty have fallen. And the loyalty there is very impressive. This, you think about last week's this man that pursued David through all the wilderness. David's having to live in caves. And he's being treated so unjustly. But after Saul's death, he would not tolerate any slander or ill will towards Israel's first king. And so now it's David's turn. At least you think it is. But I need you to get that map of a solidified Israel out of your minds for a moment. You know, the map we all studied in Sunday school, where you can see the tribes, and maybe you memorized where the tribes go, but you saw it as 12 states in a union, kind of like we're accustomed to in America, 50 states in a union that's all centered on a federal government. That's not what David inherited from Saul. There are some strong divisions. And uh, those existed even during the time of King Saul, who was the first king of the United Kingdom. But in a couple of battles, this is in 1 Samuel 11, verse 8, also in 1 Samuel 15, verse 4, when the army, the numbers of the fighting men are mentioned, they're divided off. I think uh, in 1 Samuel 11, it's 300,000 men of Israel and 300,000 men of Judah. Those designations you're probably accustomed to, but you're used to hearing that in Kings, not in Samuel. After Solomon, the kingdom officially divided. Those Fissures are in existence before David takes the throne. In fact, David and Solomon are really the only kings that ruled over a united kingdom, all 12 tribes together. And so that's very important to note at the beginning of this. But David was a uniter, and we're going to see his talents at this and his strategies throughout this lesson. And... Uh, at the beginning of this lesson, he's just ruling over Judah. But at the end of the lesson, he's ruling over all 12 tribes of Israel. So we're talking about David, the new king. And I want you to look at this survey of his reign as it's given in 2 Samuel 5, 4 through, 4 through 5. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron... He reigned over Judah seven years and six months. 
And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So his 40 years are broken down like that. Seven and a half years, the first seven and a half years, he only ruled over one tribe, a very powerful tribe, his own tribe of Judah. It took that length of time for him to bring the whole nation together. And that's what we want to look at tonight is how he was able to do that. There are a lot of names, a lot of characters in this story we're covering tonight, so I think we need to go over some of the key characters before we get too far down the road. And so these are three that I'll highlight and a couple others along with them. Number one, you'll see a lot about Abner tonight. Abner was King Saul's uncle, so he's very close to Saul, and he was the general of Saul's armies. And at the beginning of David's reign, he remained loyal to Saul's dynasty, but later on, we'll talk about this, he changed allegiances and went over to David's side. That's Abner. The second character I want to highlight is Ishbosheth. And this was the heir apparent if you're pro Saul. He was the fourth, the youngest of Saul's four sons. The oldest three are all dead, Jonathan being one of those. So Ishbosheth, if you were thinking that Saul was setting up a dynasty, he would naturally be the, the heir. The only other living heir, heir is a man named Mephibosheth, which we'll talk about Mephibosheth later on in the quarter. But he was a Jonathan's son. He was only 12 at this time, and he was crippled in both legs. Now, Ishbosheth's original name was Eshbaal, which is kind of interesting because that's translated man of Baal. And who's Baal? An idol, right, a false god. So why is Israel's, the son of one of Israel's kings named Eshbaal, man of Baal? That's not a good sign, right? And it tells you a little bit about what was going on in Saul's household. And later he was named Ishbosheth, which isn't much better. It's derived from the Hebrew for man of shame. And he ends his life as a man of shame. We'll see that tonight, too. The third character here is Joab. Joab was David's nephew. Uh, any of you smart people know which of David's siblings was the father? Oh. Well, I already messed that up. It wasn't a father. It was a sister of David, Zariah or something. I have trouble pronouncing her name, Zariah. One of David's sisters, her son was Abner. So he was David's nephew. And uh, he was Abner's counterpart. He was the general of David's armies. You also need to know the names of his two brothers. They're important in this story as well. Asahel and Abishai. Uh, they were important soldiers in David's army, but it was led by Joab. So after Saul's death, Abner, the general over Israel, just think of him as that, over the 11 tribes, loyal to Saul, he puts Ishbosheth on the throne and declares him the heir apparent. He's the new king in Israel. Now God hasn't ordained that. That was Abner's move. And the people were behind Ishbosheth. And so you have these two headquarters. You have 
Ishbosheth trying to reign in Mahanaim, which is east of the Jordan River, uh, just north of the Dead Sea. I should have put a map up. And then you have David starting his reign in Hebron, a city of Judah, a little southwest of there. And so get that in your mind. Divided by, these, by the Jordan River, you have one king on one side over 11 tribes called Israel, and David over Judah in Hebron. Now, how did this come about? Well, I think we're going to talk about unity, first of all, by talking about the causes of division. And so we're going to look at four causes of division as we open the story up and see what it can teach us. And I think it's really important for us because these will cause division in any organization, any church, any country. These four factors are alive and well, and they're wreaking havoc all over the place. So the first one, disrespect for God's will. Turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 3, and look at verse 1, which says, There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Who was on the right side of this war? The house of Saul, the house of David was on the right side. We've studied all that. Going all the way back to 1 Samuel 13, 14, God said to Samuel, I'm going to put a man after my own heart on the throne. He didn't give his name then. But in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel sent to the house of Jesse, and Jesse think, uh, rather Samuel thinks he knows who the Lord's anointed is, but the Lord rejected the oldest son, the next oldest, and on down through Jesse's seven sons until there was no one left except a young man in the fields. And God wanted that man. And on that day, in a private ceremony, David was anointed the next king of Israel. That was God's will. You have the majority of this nation anointing a king whom God did not appoint. And so that caused the initial breakdown or division, as we're calling it tonight. Disrespect for God's will. Okay, let's go to the second factor suspicion. And uh, this goes back to Ishbosheth. There's a strange twist early on in the story. You remember Abner is Saul's general, and Abner put Ishbosheth, Saul's last living heir, on the throne in Mahanaim over the 11 tribes. But Ishbosheth insulted Abner. This is kind of an honor culture. And so there's not a lot of diplomacy going on. If uh, you get insulted and you're a powerful person, you can make the other guy hurt. And that's what Abner did. There was an insult, nothing backing it up. And Abner switched allegiances and made a covenant with David to bring all Israel over to you. This is in 2 Samuel 3. And the fighting should have ended right there. With Abner... Very important piece of the puzzle has come over to David's side, and there should be 
celebration and the coronation of the new king should have occurred right then and there. But there's some enmity, some personal enmity between Abner and uh, these nephews of David. Joab, the commander of David's army, and his brothers Abishai and Asahel. So when David tells them this, they should have been happy about it. But look at their reaction in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verses 23 through 25. Joab and all the army that was with him came, and it was told, Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and he said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. So what's he saying there? He's a spy. You just let a spy come in and he's going to report all this back to Ishbosheth, and it will be our undoing. There was no evidence behind this. And uh, you'll see later that it was actually, this suspicion was very personal. In fact, let's get to that now with the third thing. The third factor of division that plays a role in this is revenge. Before Abner made this pact with David and he was on Saul's side, something happened in this family of Joab, Asahel, and Abishai that has affected their view of Abner. You know, they were on either side of the war, so what happened was uh, Joab was, Joab's younger brother, Asahel, was pursuing Abner. And if you go back a few chapters to 2 Samuel 2, 18, look at how Asahel was described. He was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. So that was his talent in war, his ability. He was really fast. And Abner was running from him, and Abner is an older man, and he never was as fast as Asahel, and he knew he wasn't going to win this battle. His back was turned to his pursuer. He was in a bad situation. So Abner keeps calling over his shoulder things like verse 22. Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? So they knew each other. But let's look at what happened. If you're in chapter 2, we're getting a little backstory here, so we backed up. Chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. Then Abner looked behind him, and he said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. And then that's when he tells him to turn aside. Um, skip down to verse 23. He refused to turn aside, therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. Abner really didn't want to do it, but he, he was in a situation where he was either going to die or the guy chasing him was going to die. And he had this really strategic move, something like from the movies. He just stopped and put the butt of his spear back. And Asahel was moving so fast, he couldn't stop. And the force pushed the spear all the way through his body. 
This was Joab's brother. This is Abishai's brother. This was the nephew of David. And Joab had not let this go. And so, after David made a covenant with Abner, Joab and Abishai, the brothers of this fallen soldier, they ask Abner if they can have a secret meeting with him. And when he goes out to meet with them, they kill him. Now David was not very happy about that. He was very upset. At first he cursed Joab, and then he mourned Abner's death in public. David was very open with his emotions. And this is one thing that we'll see his friends don't really like. But this was a politically genius move. And I'm not saying that he was doing it just for the politics. I think he was being sincere here. But the people appreciated it. And this was part of his skill in being a uniter. Look at verses 35 and 36. I'm back over in 2 Samuel 3 now. Verse 35 says, All the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God do so to me, and more also, also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. So he was fasting. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. And so the people of Israel saw that David was mourning the loss of their general who had been responsible for the death of his nephew. And they thought, maybe this is a man who could bring us together. And so his commander, Joab, was wanting revenge. That was tearing the nation apart. But David was showing forgiveness and grace. And that gave them a chance of bringing the nation together. So, uh, verse 39, David said, These men, he's talking about Joab and Abishai, the sons of Zariah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. So as the New Testament teaches us, he, he left the vengeance up to God. Joab was taking matters into his own hands. David, you see a distinction here, David was leaving the vengeance up to God. David didn't always do that, but you see him doing it here. The fourth factor and final factor in division in Israel at this time was just pure callousness. Whenever um, over in Israel, when the people heard of Abner's death, they knew that everybody was going to be on David's side. So two of, the, of Abner's captains, two of the captains of Israel, stole into Ishbosheth's bedroom one night and they cut off his head and brought the head to David thinking it would please David. Now this kind of callousness had been going on for a long time and David put a stop to it. He treated them as murderers and he had them executed, tried and executed. He gave Ishbosheth a proper burial. So he seems very focused and determined here. 
and he is battling all these factors of division. When they show disrespect for God's will, David respects God's will. When they show suspicion, David is trusting. Whenever there is revenge tearing the group apart, David leaves the vengeance to God. Whenever there is callousness, David shows heart. And we've got to be aware of these things as well. Do we see this? You know, we might not see the blood and the violence, but do you see these things in the church? Do you see it in the world around you? Do you see it in our nation? Of course, we, we know exactly what all of this is. We're very familiar with disrespect, suspicion, revenge, and callousness. How do you battle it? Well, Sunday morning we're going to talk about individual responsibility. The, the way you battle it is it starts with you. You decide, I'm going to show respect for God's will. I'm going to risk trusting others. I'm going to leave the vengeance to God and show mercy. I'm not going to be callous. I'm not going to lose my compassion for others because the world is such a dark place. I'm not going to give in to that temptation. And if you do that, you can start to be what Jesus blessed in Matthew 5. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That's what he wants us to be, peacemakers. And so look at these causes of division. They're very real. They, they've applied in every age, at every time, in every place. And uh, fight them by doing the reverse. Now, does anybody want to comment on the division? I'm going to get to the unity next. Because David takes some positive steps instead of just reacting to the, the division. Let's move on to the unity and look at true unity here. There's a lot here. So, yeah, James. Didn't David reject the leadership of Judah until all Judah came to him? Mm, I'm a little foggy on those details. There, there was some... There's a story behind his coming onto the throne at Hebron right. that I've skipped over. But... Yeah, he, he needed everyone to approve the, of this before he took that throne in Hebron for the first seven years. Yeah, you see him doing that before these things we're talking about for the whole country. That's a good point. And y'all may want to go back and look at that and see some of the things see him doing some of the things on a smaller scale there in Judah that, that we're going to find him doing here for the whole country, for the nation. Uh, so these things come, come about after those first seven and a half years that he's reigning from Hebron in Judah. Now the whole country is behind him, and uh, he has to bring them together. So we're in 2 Samuel 5 now. And here's the first, first principle that we learn from his leadership here. True unity comes by following the right leader. Abner had been 
causing disruption. He was not the right leader. Ishbosheth had caused division. He was not the right leader. David was the one that had been anointed by God. And so in this assembly at Hebron, the people revealed three criteria on which they based the recognition that he was the right leader. And the first one you see up there on the screen is human kinship. Look at uh, 2 Samuel 5, verse 1. They say to David, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. You are one of us. Flesh and bone. You're an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. We're kin. You belong here, is what they're saying. Number two, proven leadership. It dawned on them that there was a drastic difference between David and Saul. Had Saul's leadership been proven before he was thrown into that office? No. Saul had a few successful battles because the Lord was, was behind it. But Saul himself had not proven his leadership the way David had. For years, David had been loyal to the throne. He had been a faithful soldier. His heart had been after God. So they say at the first part of verse 2, In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. Saul got all the glory, but who is really the leader? You know, the person in the position is not necessarily the leader, right? Putting a title on somebody doesn't make him or her a leader. If you want to identify the leader, you look at who everybody's following. And uh, the people recognize, you know, now that it's safe to do so, I think they knew it all along. They recognize all along it's been David who's been leading us in and out. This is not a risk for us. This is how it's been going, but now we're not going to have this constant battle and inner struggle if we just all get behind him. The third thing is divine orders. So look at the last part of verse 2. They confessed, The Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. Now I find these three criteria for the right leadership very interesting because if you look at them closely, you can see they all apply to Jesus and how he's the rightful leader of us. You have the human kinship, he was born in the likeness of men, Philippians 2, 6 through 8. He was um, tempted in all points as we are yet without sin, Hebrews 4, 15. He partook of flesh and blood, Hebrews 2. So human kinship, proven leadership. Did Jesus not prove that he was our leader by going to the cross, despising the shame? and is now seated at the right hand of the throne on high. He did. And then the divine orders are, are clear. Uh, we have divine orders to accept Him as Lord. All authority has been given me in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28, 18. These three factors that solidified David's position as king work for Christ as our king. So I just found that interesting how that all tied together. Let's look at the second principle. Number two, true unity comes only by following God's word. 
David's early reign was not without its hiccups. In fact, he made a big mistake in 2 Samuel 6. So let's turn over and look at what happens here as we move through this material here. Again, David had a keen political mind. So he realized, if I'm going to bring this whole nation together, I can't do it at Hebron, which has traditionally been the capital of Judah. I can't do it at Mahanaim, which was an important city for the northern kingdom where Ishbosheth had been reigning, or any of the big cities belonging to Israel or Judah. Because the minute I do that, the other side is going to cry foul and there's going to be more civil war. But there was this city in the midst of all of them that was still being controlled by a group of people called the Jebusites. And so David went in and cleaned out the Jebusites of the city and he called it Jerusalem. And that's how Jerusalem became the capital and how it became known as the city of David. Jerusalem did not belong to Judah at that time or Israel. It was a neutral place. And so he declared Jerusalem the new capital of Israel. And that's a lot of people don't realize that early on Jerusalem wasn't a part of Israel. So you're getting the story now on that. Now, for this to be the rightful capital, David rightly concluded that he needed to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the capital city. It had been in a place called Kiriath-Jerim for decades because way back in a battle with the Philistines, they had mishandled the, the Ark of the Covenant. This is in um, 1 Samuel 6. And the people had mishandled it, and a lot of them died because they didn't treat the Ark of the Covenant with reverence. So they stowed it away in the house of some fellow that just happened to be in the area, and that's where it stayed, I think, for 70 years. And that man's house was blessed by taking care of the Ark. But that's not where the Ark belonged. It needed to be amongst the people. It needed to be in the capital city. Now, the background there is important. Why did it wind up where it was? Because they mishandled the ark. Well, guess what's about to happen next? They're about to mishandle it again. Now, here's the law on this. Uh, Numbers chapter 4. We'll skip around in it a little bit. But Numbers 4 verse 5 starts talking about how they are to handle the ark when they transport it. It was made for transportation, so the, moving it's not the problem. It was created when Israel was on the move all the time. But there were important regulations for treating it with reverence because of what it symbolized, what it stood for. It was sacred. Verse 5 says, When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the Ark of the Testimony with it. Maybe you're familiar with the compartments the sections of the tabernacle, which would later be the temple. There's a courtyard open to the public. Then you have the holy place, and then you have the most holy place, the inner sanctum. And only one person can enter into that place once a year, the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And what separated the most holy place from the holy place was this veil. 
So they're to take the veil and drop it down over the Ark of the Covenant to conceal it. Uh, there's more. If you go down to verse 15, it continues. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. Don't physically put your hands on it or you will die. And it needs to be sons of Kohath. Kohath was a son of Levi. So these aren't the, the Levitical priests, not the sons of Aaron. They're Levites, but they descend from Kohath, not Aaron. And then verse 20. They shall not go in to look on the holy things even for a moment, lest they die. That's pretty clear, right? Touch it and you're going to die. Not hard to understand. I know some of the laws in Moses can be kind of puzzling, but this is pretty clear, straightforward. But David disregarded God's word. Uh, let's look at 2 Samuel 6, verses 3 and 4. They carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the, car, the ark. Then let's go to verse 5. David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. It's exactly what Numbers chapter 4 said would happen. You don't read anything in there about an ox cart. I like the detail that it was a new ox cart. That is so human being, right? You know, especially in religion, we think, okay, we know how to do this. That dusty old Bible, it's old school, we're going to do this and we're going, to, we're going to make it right by making it shiny and new. So this is okay that we're ignoring all of these regulations because we've got ourselves a new ox cart. And we're going to celebrate and make a big show and that's going to make it okay that we're doing a lot of things for convenience sake. I'm sure this was a long journey and the way it's supposed to be handled is to be carried on poles by foot. And they looked at that long journey and they thought, that's too far. You know, it's not efficient to do this. And David was very excited to get it into the capital. I'm sure all these things were discussed. But to make up for it, they're going to do a new cart and they were going to celebrate. Well, God cut the celebration short because they weren't following his word. So, David's reaction is interesting. At first, verse 8, what was his initial reaction? He was angry. He was mad. But then, 
he became afraid. Verse 9. And he asked, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Well, David, get your Bible out and read it. It'll tell you. And evidently he did because we read about how he safely carried the ark the rest of the way to Jerusalem in 1 Chronicles 15. And uh, he says in verse 13 of 1 Chronicles 15, The Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. And so that gets back to our point. True unity comes only by following God's word. If you're going to unify, you've got to unify on something. A lot of people try to unify on a personality or on a principle. Um, what is the thing that will bring everybody together? Well, in the Lord's church, among God's people, whether it's Old Testament times, New Testament times, it has to be the Word of God. Uh, so there's a whole lot more we could say there, but I need to get to this third principle. True unity comes when God's people seek a common goal. So this comes down to verse 7. And uh, the Ark of the Covenant is saved, so the next step in David's mind is to build a temple. And you see this in verses 1 and 2 of 2 Samuel 7, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And you can understand um, David's problem with that. It, it's backwards. God comes first, we come second. So he, he decides he's going to build a house for God, but God tells him that's not what he wants. He says, David, there's too much blood on your hands. It was very disappointing to David, but God gave him this parting prophecy that's very important, one of the most important prophecies in all of Scripture. 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 12. When your days are filled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Who is that about? Well, at first it sounds like Solomon. And I think the immediate um, fulfillment is Solomon. Because Solomon was his son. He came from his body, so to speak. He built a house for God's name. He built the temple in Jerusalem. But did you catch that last word, established the throne of his kingdom forever. Solomon's kingdom didn't last very long at all. After his death, his son foolishly threw it away, and the kingdom divided, and it was worse than it was before David came to the throne. So it has to have a, a deeper application somewhere. And we don't really learn what the fulfillment of this passage is until we get to the New Testament. And Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah. And that's why Matthew begins with that genealogy we studied last quarter. It had to be established that Jesus was a son of David. And that's why when he's passing through one area, these two blind men who want to be healed, they say, Son of David, Son of David. They recognize that as a messianic prophecy. 
That's who he's talking about here. He's talking about Jesus. And this is the common goal that we all should have. This is the goal that should have always brought the Israelites back together whenever they had problems. It should be the goal that centers us together. Go ahead, Mark. I will be to him a father. This is God speaking. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. Well, there he's talking about Solomon for sure. Um, because Jesus was not a sinner. And as I said, this prophecy has two layers. And that part in verse 14 was never applied to, to Christ. Verses 12 and 13 typically were what people looked at for that second layer. So these prophecies always work this way. And if you're reading Matthew in particular, you know, Matthew will show us how it's layered. Um, and I think there are a lot of prophecies that work that way. Isaiah 7, 14, that says Jesus would be born as a virgin. Born, we're all born as a virgin. Uh, born of a virgin. Uh, I should have stopped when the bell rang. Why don't I do that? Uh, Isaiah seven fourteen. if you read it in its context, you're like, well, wait a minute. You know, where did Matthew get all of that? But um, there are parts of Isaiah seven fourteen that clearly don't apply to the immediate context, and there are parts of it that clearly don't apply to the later context. And so that's the key to these layered prophecies is... The, like we were pointing out, forever doesn't apply to Solomon, but iniquity doesn't apply to Christ. So now we know which layer goes where. All right, I better stop before I get myself into any more trouble there, but there's God's plan for unity.